This podcast is brought to you by Athene. As the world changes, so does perspective. Is the sun setting on a bull market or is dawn breaking on opportunity? As a leading provider of fixed annuities, Athene was built for times like these. Working together, the future couldn't be brighter. Athene, driven to do more. I'm Steve Forbes, and this is What's Ahead. Today, I sit down with Carl Schramm, economist, entrepreneur, and author of Burn the Business Plan, What Great Entrepreneurs Really Do. We talk about the role of entrepreneurs in the economy, ways government regulation can slow innovation, and how college is definitely not for everyone. But first, what's ahead for the Supreme Court? The death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, rightly described as a supreme loss for the high court and the nation, is setting off a colossal political battle over her successor that will end up having seismic political repercussions, not only for the fast approaching election, but also for the very structure of the Supreme Court itself. Democrats now realize they won't be able to block the confirmation by the Senate of Ginsburg's successor, a woman who will be named by President Trump on Saturday. Democrats in the media will focus on the fact that the nominee will be pro-life. But in the real world, Roe v. Wade itself will not be overturned. While admitting to no such thing, justices are mindful of public opinion. They may not overturn state laws that say restrict abortions to the first trimester unless the mother's life is at stake, but they won't do away with Roe v. Wade in the current environment. The real and immediate concern among Democrats is how a new justice might vote on cases arising from the November elections. They well remember that a high court ruling in 2000 concerning disputed ballots in Florida enabled George W. Bush to become president. The longer term worry the far left which dominates the Democrat party these days is that such a court will take a dim view of other matters that it holds dear, such as sweeping assaults on First Amendment guarantees of free speech and Second Amendment rights to bear arms. Not to mention allowing the federal government to assume vast, unprecedented powers over our lives and the economy. That's why Democrats, if they win the presidency and both houses of Congress, will be under intense pressure to pack the Supreme Court by expanding the number of justices from the nine under current law to, say, 15. This can be done merely by passing a new law. Among these lines, we can expect to see the creation of vast numbers of new judgeships for our federal appeals courts in order to nullify the pro-Constitution judges who are appointed by President Trump. Back in 1937, President Franklin Roosevelt, whose party had overwhelming congressional majorities never seen before or since, tried to pack the Supreme Court. Roosevelt was angry that the high court had overturned several of his measures, including a law that, among other things, gave government the power to regulate what prices every business could charge for products and services. A dry cleaner, for instance, was jailed for underpricing the washing and ironing of a shirt. Public opinion was shocked by Roosevelt's move, and his court packing scheme went down to a crushing defeat. Will we be so fortunate in 2021? And now, my conversation with Carl Schramm. 
Our special guest today is Carl Schramm. He's a noted economist, entrepreneur, author, professor at Syracuse University, former president of the Kauffman Foundation, and he also got a law degree and overcame that. His latest <laughs> book is Burn the Business Plan, What Great Entrepreneurs Really Do. By the way, if you want a quick MBA program for a few dollars, this is the book to read. It explains everything. You don't have to do it for two years, few hours, you got what you need. Carl headed up the Kauffman Foundation in 2002, and when he did, he made a surprising discovery. Government didn't collect statistics on startups in this country, which is the basis of the U.S. economy. Amazing. And the importance of startups, vibrancy, rejuvenating the economy. Carl, walk us through why startups are so critical to this economy. Amazingly, the government and a lot of economists seem to be ignorant of it a few years ago. Well, that's well said, Steve. It's a good observation. When I got to the Coffin Foundation, I was surprised to find that there was no empirical evidence of the level of entrepreneurship in the economy. As I got to understand what was going on in business schools, because we were funding a lot of work in business schools, I was sort of surprised, in fact, shocked to appreciate that professors of entrepreneurship weren't working off of an empirical set of data in terms of whether what they were doing was working or not working. So we set out uh, to determine, you know, to set a data series in place. We invented the data series. I was very fortunate to get uh, several very great economists. In fact, Bob Lighton became our chief economist. And we set out to teach the government how to collect these data. So we set in place the first data series to measure how many new starts were happening. And what we found was actually pretty scary because simply put, what we found was about 1980, this country was starting about 800,000 new businesses that had high potential. That is, they hired somebody in their first year, and they were much more likely to survive five years. And by the time I was at Kaufman, that number had slipped to about 600,000. So it was going down. And by the time I left Kaufman, it was at 500,000, where it's largely been for the last few years. It's actually starting to tick up during the Trump presidency for reasons we could discuss. But the point was... Even as entrepreneurship was becoming a profession or a discipline in universities, everybody was talking about entrepreneurship. The actual phenomenon itself was going down. You know, there's a huge disconnect there. So this became a, a big area of our question, a big area of our research. And when I left the Coffin Foundation 10 years later, it's what caused me to write this book, you know, Burn the Business Plan, because that's really symbolic of saying, the approach we were using to help entrepreneurship and have been using was actually having no impact at all. And one of the things that comes out of this entrepreneurship, I think you and others have observed, is that unique to the United States, each generation we create from these startups a large number of large companies. It's not just the same old, same old that you see in the rest of the world. New giants repeatedly come along. I don't know uh, if you call them unicorns, but 75 or so each generation. Mm -hmm. Large companies that didn't exist before, which provides a dynamism and a scale that it was unique to the United States. That's totally correct historically. And, and that still goes on, although I think it's harder and harder because we're getting a lot of concentration at the top. But generation after generation, people come along, they see what needs to be done. I actually characterize this phenomenon as entrepreneurs see what we need that we can't see. They see needs for products that we didn't know we needed. And they generate this 
constant turmoil downstairs, if you will, that the big companies don't perceive. And Joseph Schumpeter in 1950 wrote about this, basically, and he said, you know, this is the dynamism of displacing the incumbent big companies who can't figure out where things are going. So I think in that regard, the United States is still pretty healthy in the sense that we have a great deal of new ideas tumbling in all the time. And some of these are going to become big, big companies. And we'll get to it later on uh, your observations on the economics profession. But uh, this obsession with equilibrium, Schumpeter was one of the few who recognized that's not the way the real world works. Right. You said this started in 1980, but you also point out between 1995 and 2006, there was this decline. It went on. So what were the two big reasons? Uh, Start with the unique role until recent years of small banks and the role they played in these uh, small startups getting off the ground. Yes, Steve, that's really an important point. And if you go back, let's just say 1980s, our benchmark, uh, we have a vibrant venture capital industry, but it's actually small and doesn't really make a huge amount of difference to whether or not we're going to have these big companies or not. Sooner or later, they get money. And the reason I can say that with confidence is uh, local banks basically took the risk. That's how we funded uh, industry. If we reach backward, the word entrepreneur was not in common parlance. When I first started my business, my first business, when I left Johns Hopkins where I was teaching, I remember it's about four years into the business and somebody said, you know, you're an entrepreneur. And I thought, no, I'm, I'm an economist who's running a data business. Thank you. We're doing fine. I didn't know what an entrepreneur <laughs> was. Okay. And uh, the money I had to get was actually bootstrapped. We, we built the business off of the money that was coming in largely because the only venture capitalist I spoke to said to me, you know, Hopkins professors make terrible business people. I I guess that's the end of my venture capital uh, journey, okay? Uh, So it was local banks. And in fact, I had a banker locally said, you need money, come see me, okay? Uh, He was the chairman of the mercantile. And he he saw what I was doing and I'd left the university and he thought that was curious. Uh, But um, I, I didn't actually need the money we were bootstrapping in. You know, it was that encounter with the venture capitalists where I set my teeth and said, well, I'll show you, okay, we can do this with our own money. And we did. Um, But your point is very well taken. You know, we've had two huge attempts by the federal government to sort of make banking transparent and comply with the federal government's view of banking. We had Dodd-Frank and then we had, before that, Sarbanes-Oxley. And they actually crushed uh, banking. And then loads more stuff that people aren't actually familiar with went on to this. So, for example, um, the SBA decided that anybody who was going to get money had to have a written business plan. And that has been forced down even to local banks. So uh, the complexity of getting an SBA loan is is just overwhelming. You know, to, to have a notion that there are consultants out there that will help help you navigate an SBA loan is just repulsive. These are folks who, well, like me, have never had been in business before, right? They do, they don't know. They know the SBA is there, and then somebody hints to them that you know Matilda over here is a consultant. You can hire her, and for four thousand bucks, she'll manage your SBA application. This is crazy. And so banks then became hiring more compliance officers rather than loan officers. The role of regulation. I remember reading the story that Times ran it and others picked up on it. Typical 
Apple Orchard, upstate New York, subject to 5,000 rules and regulations from 17 different programs and agencies. And one of the regulations is when they pick the apples and put them in the cart to take them to the shed, they have to put a tarp on the apples, lest the birds uh, leave droppings, forgetting that the apples have been open on the tree for, what, five months. Yeah. That kind of thing just saps the vitality out of a, a startup, which is precarious enough. Walk us through some of the, the onslaught of regulation and why did it happen? Uh, well, I grew up in that region, in, in the upstate uh, apple orchard region. And, it, you know, you hear farmers talk about exactly that all the time. Now, why did that happen? Um, I think, actually, it's one of the reasons that also explains a bigger phenomenon. Why is the slowdown in entrepreneurship happening? We have the sense that any business advances only at an environmental cost. This is a huge phenomenon inside universities and these programs. It's not even the entrepreneurship programs. It's across the entire university that growth comes at the cost of destruction of the environment. So if you think about Albany, you have a vast uh, bureaucracy down there that somebody drives through, you know, the Finger Lakes and they see these apples and somehow think, you know, if a bird hits an apple, um, that, that could be bad for consumers, maybe. Not appreciating that all those apples will be washed and warehoused and everything else, okay? Uh, I have a friend who has a dairy farm in upstate New York. It's the same issue. If he has more than 100 cows, they have to be out of the sun in a barn, open barn, all summer long, right? So cows can't be pastured. And, and who came up with that idea? Somebody in Albany who was worried about suntanned cows. And, uh, you know, <laughs> the problem we're seeing here is once the government gives a general grant to protect the environment or protect consumer goods grown in the environment, corn and apples and such like, you have a phalanx of uh, folks in state capitals and in Washington who just have new ideas about what to do. They're not tested. They're not empirically tested. And God bless the farmer who has to deal with it. And, and these are inspections that come all the time. Now, Steve, just to end this part of this question, I actually report this, I think, in my book. I was teaching one day at Syracuse, and a student came up and said, I have a really great idea. And he explained it. I said, hmm, that's kind of interesting. And his next question is, will the government let me do this? And I thought that was one of the most tragic encounters I could possibly imagine as an American. Here's a 19-year-old already infused with the notion that he or she has to ask the government about their idea before they take the risk. One of the things uh, you hit on is government regulation is hurting, but also there are just misunderstandings about how entrepreneurship unfolds. Uh, let's start with uh, your story. You're uh, an academic. You uh, <laughs> come up with an idea to make hospitals more efficient. Uh, walk us through that. And also, your customers turned out not to be so much the hospitals as people who were buying hospital bonds. Yes. And again, one of those things you can't count on in a business plan. So walk us through your story, which is unique to you, but not unusual in how people end up becoming entrepreneurs. Well, as I start out, I would echo, it's unique to me. Every entrepreneur's story is unique. And the other thing I want uh, the listeners to hear is the accidental nature of this. I was surprised, overtaken, ambushed by an idea. I didn't set out to be an entrepreneur, and that's also important. 
I think huge numbers of people who are successful entrepreneurs shared exactly my experience. They came accidentally to being an entrepreneur. And I think that's a caution because there are, there are lots of kids who set out, that's going to be my profession. I'm going to be an entrepreneur. No, I don't think that's how it works. Like in my case, I, I was progressing just terrifically as an economist at Hopkins. I did health economics and I was one of the first in the field and began to study the question about concentration of ownership of hospitals to see if at the local level, there would in fact be price gouging, predatory pricing. And had consolidated all the cost accounting data for four states, every hospital in four states. And I had 10 years of data. And as I pushed through it, it became clearer and clearer that there were inefficiencies all over the place. So I said, I really want to change how hospitals operate. And I began to accumulate this data and I began to talk to hospitals. And I said, if I could show you how to be more efficient than the hospital next door and you could make more money, would you buy the data? And enough hospitals said, sure that I began to hire students. I had some consulting income. And as we began to advise a couple of hospitals, we got to bigger hospitals. We got somebody out selling this. But it turned out that hospitals were really not quite competitive. At the time, this was the Reagan administration. You had a whole mess of economists who didn't know what they're talking about saying, oh, it's price competition. Hospitals are going to reduce prices and costs because they all compete. Well, the fact is they were getting most as they do now. 60% of their income was coming from the federal government, which was really controlled by Congress. There was no price competition. So my company was not growing like I wanted it to. I mean, I thought, well, okay, I gave up a tenured position at Hopkins. I should at least be getting money, okay? I should get rich. After a while, looking for growth, I did what uh, people call pivot. And it occurred to me, because I was on a state commission that oversaw hospital finance, that uh, hospitals were basically buying debt. Uh, they were buying insurance on the debt when they built a new building. So they would sell bonds. And a big insurance company in New York, three or four of them, would in fact cover the debt, um, which was pretty secure debt. It was like city debt, because you had the federal government paying all the money. And basically, unless the federal government went under, the hospital wasn't going to go under. So I went up to one of those insurance companies. I just dropped in, I made an appointment and I saw the chief underwriter. And I said, if I had all this data on every hospital in the country, which I did by that time, could I make you a customer? And this guy said to me, which a lot of entrepreneurs have exactly this story. I was waiting for you to come through that door. Okay. And I instantly knew that we had a successful company on our hands. And there are lots of entrepreneurs who actually have that moment when they've pivoted or found a customer and it's all different the next day. So yeah, you're, you're right. I set out to do one thing and then surprise, I got to do something else and I didn't know anything about the insurance company. And the next day I woke up, I was in the insurance company. So that, that, that was the pivot. Well, it gets to uh, the point you made earlier about people not knowing what they need until somebody comes with it. I'm reminded of the old story of Steve Jobs when asked if he did marketing surveys. He said, no, because people don't know what they want until I show them. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> No lack of self-esteem there. Right. Uh, let's deal with the myths that stand in the way in addition to taxes and regulations in terms of uh, promoting entrepreneurship. One is you haven't had a billion-dollar company by the age of 21, uh, it's over. This myth that only the young are really entrepreneurs. Yes, you had that youngster who talked about the government, but uh, you explode that myth. It's actually quite the opposite. It, uh, you do better when you're older. Walk us through that. 
Well, that's another one of those things that was the marvel of being able to run a big foundation. I kept wondering why we were focusing so much on universities and colleges, because in my own experience, (laughs) I started my business when I was 38. And I kept running into people who at conventions of entrepreneurs were not youngsters. And we basically set out to actually measure once again with a census of entrepreneurs. And when all that data came back, holy smokes, the average age of people starting a business is 39. So that set us off on a completely different research route of where do people get their ideas and how is it that they get to middle age and decide to be entrepreneurs. Well, along those lines, you uh, point out, I think 25% of businesses are started by people at or near retirement. Yes, yes. And that number is going up, you know, hugely because it's a phenomenon of wealth and leisure and ambition. And we see a lot of people get to 65. Uh, They've got sufficient wealth to be secure. They're not at all comfortable with leisure. And they've got a a head tumbling full of new ideas. And uh, we're watching more and more entrepreneurship in this, this older population. And uh, among young people, I think you pointed out only uh, 5 to 7% of the universe comes out of uh, these young tech entrepreneurs. The, the, the rest are uh, people doing, doing other things. And you point out that uh, mature entrepreneurial success, uh, the older you are, it's upwards five times greater than those in the 20s. Yeah. And so this gets to uh, something uh, very interesting, and that is the importance of large companies in incubating entrepreneurs. Walk us through that. Yes. When we did that research, I I kept saying, where are these people coming from? And, um, you know, we sent people into the field to talk to them. And lo and behold, many of these people um, had been in big companies uh, their whole lives. Actually, uh, they'd had about eight, eight year stints. So they'd been in one company and then been in another company and then been in another company. So they'd actually seen a composite of how our American economy worked. And more importantly, I think, they had seen the culture in two or three major companies. So they had seen how the companies innovate, how they produce, what their supply chain is. They'd had an MBA three times over in terms of just watching how their companies worked. And in this regard, they had much more confidence. That explains the five times more successful uh, statistic that you pointed to. And the second part of it was, that a large number of these folks were trying to innovate inside these big companies. It takes it back to the point you made at the very beginning. And I ta- I've talked to loads of these folks who basically said, I could have saved our company or I knew the turning point and I begged the CEO to listen to what I had to say and he wouldn't. So they left. They just escaped in a sense. They, they had some psychological force And again, Steve, this comes to middle age. They had some security. They had the family formed. In many cases, they had a spouse that was working and they could take these risks. And these are actually hugely inspirational stories, which I suspect make a lot of CEOs cringe in terms of uh, what, you know, the, the ideas that got away. More from my conversation with Carl Schramm in a moment. But first, what's ahead in politics? Democrats are pushing statehood for both Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. They figure this will give their party four surefire new seats in the Senate. And in the case of Puerto Rico, a few extra reliably blue electoral votes in future presidential elections. 
Statehood for Puerto Rico could well happen in the next couple of years, but is unlikely for D.C. The big obstacle for the District of Columbia becoming a new state is the Constitution itself, which specifically created the new capital as a separate entity, precisely because it didn't want it to be dominated by a state. The territory for the district was carved out of Maryland and Virginia to be a size where it wouldn't be a mere rump. In the 1840s, a piece of the district was reattached to Virginia in a process called retrocession. Proponents of statehood say the district's 700,000 residents should be able to vote for members of Congress in the Senate like the other 50 states. Thanks to the 23rd Amendment to the Constitution, they already get to participate in presidential elections. The easiest solution would be to do another round of retrocession and reattach the bulk of the residents to Maryland. But many scholars believe making the district so small wouldn't pass constitutional muster. More to the point, Democrats don't like rejoining Maryland because the state already has senators. That's why they want D.C. to be a separate state and pick up those two extra seats. Given the fact that the Constitution is specific about the capital being a separate territorial entity, statehood advocates have come up with a cute solution. Carve out the White House, the National Mall, federal buildings and monuments, and the Capitol itself as the new district and make the rest of Washington a new state. We noted that this rump may violate the Constitution. And there is another problem. The rump would have only a handful of residents, but under that 23rd Amendment, they would determine three electoral votes in a presidential election. That would be preposterous, a handful of people determining that many electoral votes. Most Americans oppose D.C. statehood, but they are favorably disposed to Puerto Rico joining the union. The question is, do Puerto Ricans themselves want it? In past referendums, they have rejected statehood or independence and instead have chosen to keep their current status called the Commonwealth status, where they're American citizens, choose their own government, but don't pay federal taxes and don't vote in presidential or congressional elections. A new referendum would have to be held where the issue could be discussed in detail. If the people of Puerto Rico do choose statehood, then Puerto Rico, which has been a U.S. territory for over 120 years, should be admitted to the Union as the 51st state. And now, back to my conversation with Carl Schramm. Well, one of the uh, things you uh, touch on is uh, in the Valley, they sort of feel you've got to ramp up quickly or you're going to fail. But these businesses go through iterations. Mm-hmm. may take seven years, eight years, 13 years before it really clicks. Mm-hmm. Walk us through the, in the real world, the, norm, the, the time span, you got to be prepared for if this thing is really going to uh, take off. Yeah, let me answer that in two observations. The first is let's go back to the Silicon Valley because we have this myth that you start the business. You're, I'm sorry, you have the idea, you write the business plan, you get venture capital, you start the business, and in no time, you've done your exit strategy, right? Uh, and I see students who think that's like maybe two years or three years. I have a great idea, write the business plan, get some venture capital, and I'm rich in four years. The reality is, even in the in the Silicon Valley, it's it's between 10 and 13 years before anybody gets the exit event, the IPO event. So it's a lot longer. And, you know, we think of these unicorns, but if you just look at what came to the market this week, I always look, when was this company founded? 
And many of the companies that today look like high flyers are already 11 years old and they're, they're doing their first IPO. And then if we come back to smaller businesses and localities that are serving a regional market, it's a great struggle. And most of them don't know if they're really going to be successful till 10 years. So if you get through the five-year mark, your chances keep going up, but nobody has a business that really seems to be scaling on average until they're in their 10th or 12th year. And what I, I want to make another point about that. Traditionally, we didn't have entrepreneurs. We call people who owned a business and started a business, a business person. It was the guy down the street who was starting a business. And there's an estimate that uh, GI's coming back from World War II, as many as 30% started a business. It's what they thought they ought to do. And then we made it a rarefied event. We called it entrepreneurship, right? And we started to teach people how to do it. And the number of people actually doing it went down and continues to be very flat in terms of, of its character. So part of what got messed up when we began to formalize this and talk about it is we had this sort of notion that it was a quick trip to rich. And it's not at all. But the point I really wanted to make here is most people starting a business like those GIs coming back, they didn't think about the exit strategy. They thought about building, in a sense, an institution. It wasn't about, I'm going to be in and out of this in five years. It was about, we'll see where this goes. You know, it goes all the way back to like Procter & Gamble or Ford. Henry Ford had no idea of selling the company. In fact, his family is yet to sell the company. There is no exit strategy for Ford, okay? The market may create an exit strategy for Ford, but the point to be taken is, is not that sort of quick, funny comment on the side. Loads of our businesses were started to be around forever. Uh, talking about startups and the environment today, I'm surprised to learn is that uh, the disproportionate number of businesses in recent years started by Latinos. Mm -hmm. Getting to your point, you want, you want to run something, but uh, they all had the complaint they had problems getting the bank to take them seriously or, you know, fund them the way you said it would have been done years ago. And even and before COVID smashed things up, African-American business formations were starting to uh, move up. Yeah. And post-COVID, do quick speculation. Can, can we get this train back on the track again? And how, how do we get banks to lend? Because the Latinos, African-American, I mean, it's a very American story. You, you, you decide you want to make something. Well, it, it goes to a big philosophical thing, and I, I don't mean to be in the realm of politics, but, but President Trump articulates constantly his vision of Latinos and African-Americans participating in the economy. He keeps emphasizing that they're the folks who are the first people he's focused on in getting jobs. And the starting of businesses in this group is really critical. I, I think the White House, we know the federal government, is aware of the fact that we have higher incidences of business formation in the Latino community. And, you know, the federal government also knows, but they, they don't talk about this much. But if you rewind the tape to 1950, business starts in the African-American community exceeded business starts in the white community. Uh, and part of what happened there, a very serious, serious mistake of the federal government was public housing. Because as you were trying to clear out ghettos and slums, uh, albeit a discriminating economy, a discrimination, uh, an economy ripe with discrimination, all the services 
that African-Americans had were from African-American businesses. And when we built those big public housing projects... Or highways. What, yes, or highways. Bronx. You know, the government basically gave an African-American with a business 14 months, no relocation plan or anything, just blew up a business that was a generational, multi-generational business. And if you look at, you know, any place, any place in America where you see public housing, there's no... Uh, shopping centers conceived of in the beginning of building these buildings. It was all about housing, no appreciation of the economy underneath it. And, and that's been devastating to the uh, position of blacks in the American economy. And getting to uh, small businesses, you point out something that uh, many in your community look their noses down at, franchisees. Franchises. Yeah. You point out 40 to 45 percent of the jobs. You you talk about Bob Carlucci. We'll get to him in a moment in, <laughs> in your book on uh, the importance of franchises in terms of uh, business creation. Yet schools don't teach franchising. <laughs> they, no, they think it's beneath them. <laughs> they they do because it's somehow um, you know a paint by the numbers business. And why do you need us to teach you how to start a business when you can get the handbook from the franchisor? You know, it's fast food, okay? It's suburbs. It's all the things that academics sort of have uh, a reluctance to accept as real life for most people. And um, I watched it a lot, and I met too many people who bought their first franchise. And then, you know, like Bob Carlucci, you wake up one day and you're operating a business in 16 states. Uh, you know, you have thousands of employees. It begins with wearing franchise. What's wrong with that? Okay. And, um, you know, the whole concept of the franchise is, is a marvelous disruptor. Uh, if you think about, you know, Croc and the starting or really the restarting of McDonald's, think of how many business people he lured into selling hamburgers. And at the back end of this, you see how many uh, millionaires who, who became a franchisee and they learned business. You know, many of them started a McDonald's franchise and they're real estate developers and they're farmers and they're doing advanced types of supply chain stuff. You know, these are people who don't normally have college educations, right? And these days we think everybody ought to have had an education. You know, we have this conception of Steve Jobs, you know, and Bill Gates as super duper smart people. It turns out you don't have to be super duper smart to start a business. And when you're in that business, the people who are successful actually make themselves into super duper smart. They learn on the job. Well, this, this is important. Uh, you, you make the point of self-realization uh, when, when you go through this, learning things about yourself you never knew before. So uh, mention uh, the Bob Carlucci story in, uh, in Boston. They pronounce it Taco Bell. That's uh, <laughs> <laughs> an interesting story, but... Uh, underscores the point you made about how this leads to uh, far beyond just uh, eating a taco. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's a, a good friend of mine now. He lives in Annapolis. He was a student in a Boston conservatory because he had his heart set on being a classical musician. His father died. They were a second-generation Italian family. His mother had to work at night. He had uh, younger siblings. And Bob dropped out of the conservatory and took a job at the General Electric plant. And at night, to make more money, he uh, swept the floors of a pool hall in Boston. And uh, out of the clear blue, he's looking at classified ads. This is a, really a marvelous story. And somebody is selling two vending machines. He asked the owner of the pool hall, 
could he put in vending machines? And the guy said, sure. And suddenly Bob was teaching himself the vending machine business. So this is somebody whose aspirations were classical music. And he built a huge vending machine business. And then he said, you know, vending machines are going to be in an end because what we really sell is cigarettes. So he began to do a pivot. And he thought the best looking brand new uh, franchise was Taco Bell. And uh, when he went to meet with the board of the bank, they basically said, you know, what, what are these tacos? Nobody in Boston knew what a taco was. So he had a struggle to get another bank loan, but in a different bank, in a different region, he got his first Taco Bell. He wanted, of course, ambitiously to have the whole regional franchise. They said, we'll give you one and see how you do. Okay. And Taco Bell was a very small company at that point. <laughs> they had very few vendors on the East Coast. So Bob had virgin territory. And anyway, he made a great go of it and became one of their you know, biggest franchisees. And then he took on other uh, franchises in the fast food business. And he has really, uh, I think it's 16, 17 state business right now. He has what, 16,000 employees or something? Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Amazing, yeah. amazing. Mm -hmm. Now in uh, the world you inhabit, you must be regarded by some as an infidel in terms of uh, entrepreneurship can't be taught. Yeah. The only way to learn is to start a business. It's all about self-education. Yes. Yes. You say those things and you're still alive. Tell us about this. <laughs> well, uh, the only reason I stay alive is I avoid going into business schools where they, they have well-sharpened uh, <laughs> pitchforks ready to, to hit me with if, if I go there. But I firmly believe this, that it, it can't be taught. It strikes me as somehow very hard to absorb that we give degrees in entrepreneurship, in fact, PhDs in entrepreneurship, and there's no canon. Now imagine, I told you the story that when I got to Kaufman, we were able to basically start data series that would tell us how many entrepreneurs exist, okay? How many new businesses were started? How could you teach the process without knowing these things? So it, it's, a, it's a group of people that seem to be hugely incurious about the kind of research I like to do as an economist, and yet very dogmatic in understanding and promulgating a notion of how you start businesses. And I, Steve, would basically say to get myself in either further trouble, this is the uh, difference in the epistemology between understanding big data, like I had in, in my own business, versus understanding the world through case studies. Um, Case studies tell you something about something, but imagine the case study of the loquacious, outgoing entrepreneur over here and the entrepreneur I described in Kansas City just didn't talk, okay? Tremendously successful, more successful than this guy. How would you capture in, in the compare and contrast world these two cases and come up with an entrepreneur's personality or a lesson that you can convey to students about who's an entrepreneur, right? We, we don't really know who entrepreneurs are. Often they don't know until they actually have that moment you yeah, had. Yeah, after, like myself, till after the fact, okay? There's no appreciation of the accidental or ambushing of an idea of the person. There's, there's very little focus at the university level on the age group, they're really the successful people who start, who are sua sponte. They, they turn themselves into entrepreneurs voluntarily. They don't declare at the outset of college, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. 
One of the things you uh, suggest that the school should do is uh, have real life experiences. If you want to study business, okay, do some studying, accounting course or whatever, but then spend a semester working with a real company and see like uh, these middle-aged uh, people do how the real world works. <laughs> yeah, there are programs like that at um, Northeastern was, I think, one of the first to do it. Uh, General Motors created its own college and, and uh, people went to college and then they went into the factory and they came back uh, to the classroom. And there are these uh, participatory programs. Students like them more and more because one of the things that happens there is you can graduate without debt. But, but the real point is the one you've made is you go into the companies, you see how it works, and you can make your own education, which you're responsible for, much more relevant. The day after you get back on campus, you say, oh, I know where this fits in corporate structure. Mm -hmm. Maybe one of the things students should be told when they have summer jobs, working at a restaurant or something, don't just see it as a way of uh, meeting friends and uh, getting some extra cash. See how the place really works. Yep. What makes it tick? What doesn't make it tick? Start looking at it as you are an anthropologist or an archaeologist. Yes. What, uh, what do we have here? And uh, make it an education for which you're getting paid. Yep. That's a, that's a great point. Very great point. And uh, so government has gone into the entrepreneurial business, uh, incubators and all that kind of thing. Describe the cargo cult theory, uh, which is evinced by if you build a garage, Steve Jobs will suddenly show up and uh, do something great. <laughs> That's right. You, you, you talk about the cargo cult. <laughs> well, that was uh, propounded by a physicist who sort of brought it to light. It was an anthropologist observation. But it goes back to America had Air Force bases tucked in the uh, South Pacific and the South Pacific Islanders in, in one case in World War II, uh, you know, benefited hugely because there were cargo drops constantly. And when the war was over, all that ended. And later people came back and saw people sort of behaving uh, uh, like soldiers behaved, hoping that the cargo would come back out of the sky. And in a sense, I, I use that to describe uh, I think how we approach teaching entrepreneurs, okay? If there's a garage and everything in Silicon Valley started in Hewlett Packard's garage, okay? Or in, in Wozniak's garage, maybe the garage is important. And I've been in incubators where they actually have little garages built, okay? Because it's like, it happens in garages. And I know it's supposed to be a metaphor, even the people who run these places know it's a metaphor. But the point is the metaphor, they carry weight in our head. And in a sense, uh, the idea that, uh, as you see in incubators, when I visit, there is a cultish feel in many of these incubators about we're, we're behaving like entrepreneurs, right? Uh, we're wild and crazy. We got a pool table. We got a ping pong table. And you crank back the history of these folks. They were, I think, to a huge extent, entrepreneurs are not socially active beings, which is the premise of these incubators. Most entrepreneurs, like, like my, myself, when it's happening, you're by yourself. You want to withdraw. You want to test it because you're in the business of growing yourself. So the notion that if you walk into an incubator, oh man, it is fantastic, right? It's very highly social. You want to spend an hour or two there. And then suddenly at four o'clock, there'll be all kinds of food, and then an expert will come in and talk to you and enforce 
uh, the notion that you should do this in, in teams and this is how it's done. And this, this looks just like the garage 40 years ago. And mentors, you say mentors should be treated like Kleenex. Yeah, uh, a lot of these operations are, are proud of the, the mentors, but if in these local situations, even in places like New York City, the mentors are retired accountants, the retired dentists in many places, people who had a business. And in some cases, they're people, the best ones are people who actually started entrepreneurial businesses that hit scale. Yet, it's as if I went in, you know, when I was an entrepreneur, that was like 40 years ago, okay? The things that I had to manipulate then are hugely different. And it was in a different industry. And even if it's in healthcare data, the whole industry has moved hugely. So the reason I say they should be treated like clinics, I've listened in on too many discussions where the mentor dogmatically says, do this, right? And you have somebody 40 years younger who's actually hitting the market every day, trying to test his idea, trying to test his product every day, 10 hours a day. And suddenly you have a, another voice over here saying, do this, right? With, with a dogmatic authority. I think it's very, very dangerous. Now, some people get the right mentor and it is very useful, but I can't even count five people who said, I could not have done this, but for the advice I got from this person. And the SBA, Small Business Administration, you say, uh, metaphorically, just blow it up because of this obsession with business plans that actually inhibit people doing a business. Yeah, they've tried to bureaucratize the whole process of starting a business. And I said before, we don't have to repeat that. The complexity of trying to get SBA support is, is just too much for most entrepreneurs to navigate. And, and that shouldn't be the case. Uh, if it was up to me, we'd have a banking support system, and that would be about it. Is it possible to, uh, in effect, deregulate or community banks where it's okay to uh, do the kinds of things that were normal for them a few decades ago instead of looking over their shoulder and saying, how's the regulator going to uh, respond to this? Yeah, positively, I think it is, because these are regulations that the Congress didn't put in place. They, Congress just gave authority to the FBA. And uh, you began the discussion closing the number of fewer startups. Is this also a reason why we have fewer listed companies? I mean, talking about big companies, there are fewer listed today than there were 10, 20 years ago. I remember an index called the Wilshire 5000. It's yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And, and we're half of that number now in terms of listed companies. And I think that's, that's exactly right. It's a reflection of a, a lot of capital accumulation, the, the ossification of people being able to get the capital. It also represents uh, something in the United States we deny all the time, and that's industrial policy. We do have a huge prejudice to see our big companies remain big. And it, it, it wefts down, it may in fact be part of what allows the SBA to have all this cumbersome regulation downstairs. We're not really sure we want all these troublesome new businesses entering down at the bottom. Also, I think uh, to, the, to the great detriment of entrepreneurs, our American bureaucracy has borrowed a lot of language from the EU. So mm. uh, Steve, 15 years ago, you would have never heard the phrase small and medium-sized businesses, right? And I've been to Europe enough, engaged in enough stuff in Europe to understand every time I hear that phrase, I think to myself, this is industrial policy. They might as well say cute little businesses, right? 
businesses that will never grow up because we have our big businesses. And this is a nice swirl down at the bottom and retail and so forth, but it's nothing to worry about. And, uh, you know, now all over the uh, federal establishment, we talk about small and medium-sized business. And in closing, you're an economist, among other things, but you say the uh, profession is, has, has some troubles. You're not a fan of what, uh, is it the obsession with equations and numbers instead of doing what Adam Smith did and go to an actual pin factory to see how the world worked? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, I think in many regards, uh, there's also a lot of chasing of uh, celebrity among economists that didn't exist when I was getting my PhD. You know, we were kind of a dreary profession, as, as people said, um, but trying to figure out how the world worked. I think a lot of what we see in economics now is people come in with a normative view about how the world should work, and they do the research back from that. And I think that's actually fundamentally dangerous. But I think at the same time, you know, one of the things that got loose here was when we let other people play like economists, you can't stop them from doing so. So, you know, we see Kenneman's work on, who's, who's a psychologist on fast and slow, right? Making real insights into uh, how markets work and so forth. And I was just reading a paper last night where I, I think there's there's loads and loads of evidence of people coming up with a vision uh, that the way we think about capitalism and the shifting from a commodities to a service economy, it takes a long time to catch up to this stuff. But I think there's a lot of new theory developing that, uh, that I hold promise for. Right. Well, Carl, thank you for uh, being with us. Uh, the name of his book is Burn the Business Plan, What Great Entrepreneurs Really Do. Uh, that's worth uh, several semesters in uh, college. Uh, <laughs> maybe skip college altogether. Thank you for being with us and uh, continue to enlighten us on how the real world works and what we must do to once again get that kind of uh, true starting business flavor that was uh, truly uniquely American. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Steve. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it. 